I wanted to talk to you about how Jesus sets us free. And this is based on John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. How Jesus sets us free. Have you ever wondered about that? Many people have used the statement or the, or the verse, those whom the Son sets free is freed indeed. I'm really free. I'm free. I'm free. And then you wonder like, okay, exactly what am I free? In, in what am I free? How have I been freed? How many of you still deal with temptations in your life at times? Yeah? One, two, okay, three. <laughs> You're like, I thought I was free. <laughs> yeah? How many of you, when you disobey God, you go like, I thought I was free to no longer have to obey, right? You wonder like, okay, now I have to obey. What have you been set free from? In what way did Christ set us free? Now, to throw the backdrop up before we continue, um, I really am going to be as disciplined as I can to walk through the book of John so we can understand the book of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very historical. John, extremely doctrinal. So it's very important for us to walk through John from beginning to end and get a full picture of this book. So in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, John identifies and proclaims Christ, and he claims many things about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the Word. He says He is the light. He says Jesus is the truth. He says that Jesus is with God, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God in the flesh walking among us. He is the Lamb of God, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one the whole entire Old Testament has been prophesying about and has been speaking about, and that Jesus Himself is the King of Israel, God's Israel. And in chapter 2, we go beyond the testimony of Jesus, beyond the words of Christ to the works of Christ. And in this, I mean the, the miracles of Jesus. You might ask, well, why did Jesus perform miracles? The Bible is clear. It tells us that Jesus performed miracles, and so did the early apostles, in order to validate their position that they stood in. He is the Messiah. And he, was going, he performed miracles, and these miracles he performed was really a fulfillment of what the Old Testament said he was going to do. Like, for instance, we see that he turns water into wine. Well, how is this a fulfillment? Remember when we talked through chapter 2, we saw how those jars of clay that they had at a wedding feast were filled with water, and this water was for the cleansing of those who attended the wedding feast. And here is Jesus. He starts his ministry with a, or his, his first miracle with a wedding, and the last one ends with a wedding where we become the bride of Christ, and he is our groom. And instead of water cleansing people's hands and feet, he turns it into wine, which is what? signifies His blood, which is what sanctifies and cleanses you and I. Every single miracle that Jesus performed was extremely meaningful. That was in chapter 2, and then chapter 4. Tina, I think it's too cold in here, if you don't mind. Then in chapter 4, He heals a dying man. We see in chapter 5, He cures the paralyzed man, Bethesda. And then in chapter 6, He multiplies the food for thousands of people. And just as the manna in the Old Testament fell from heaven and satisfied them, so here he was multiplying the bread, satisfying them. He is the fulfillment of all Old Testament pictures. And then we see in, also in chapter 6, he walks on the water, which is really 
reminiscent of the Israelites walking through the Red Sea, which is a type of baptism. He's superior and lord over even creation as he walks over the water. And it was in this chapter where Jesus said, unless you eat, the, eat my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no part in me. And they said, is he crazy? What is wrong with you that you would speak in these terms? And they turned around and walked away from him after everything they have seen him do. And this is only a significant of the fact that they came after him because of what those miracles meant to them, not what it meant for Christ. It meant that it affirmed Christ, and they couldn't care less about that. They cared about having more bread. Many people, many people are Christians today because of what they can get, out, get from Christianity instead of who they can worship, which is God Almighty. In chapter 7, Jesus summarizes the gospel in a fantastic way, in three words. Somebody asked me the other day, how do I share the gospel? Well, there are many ways to share the gospel. One way to not share the gospel is to go to somebody and say, I don't know if you're the chosen or not. <laughs> I don't know if you're elect, so I'm not going to share the gospel in case you are not elect. You know, <laughs> that's not one way of not sharing the gospel. But here Jesus shares the gospel in three words in John chapter 7, verse 37. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. I love how the Bible talks about how he cries out. What does that mean? He declares. You can only imagine. He must have had a big voice. He spoke to thousands without microphones. And Jesus cries out and he says this, watch this, if anyone thirsts, if anyone what? Thirsts, let him do what? Come and do what? Drink. Let anyone, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink and he will never thirst again. Those are the three words. That summarized the entire gospel. See, if I were to offer you a brick of gold or a glass of water, which one would you take? Yeah. Says all the gold, those who invest in gold. <laughs> a brick of gold. Do you know how much a brick of gold goes for today? I think it's approximately $750,000, a brick of gold. So if I were to offer you one of the two, which one would you grab? The one that's most valuable to you. Gold, right? However, if you happen to be walking through a desert for three days straight without water, your mouth is totally dry, your lips are cracked and bleeding, your body is completely dehydrated, and if I were then to offer you a brick of gold or a glass of water, which one would you grab? Well, you would find no value in the gold at that time but you would grab the water. This is what we call circumstantial priorities. Circumstantial priorities. Depending on your circumstance, that determines what you prioritize. And the reason people don't run to Christ is they have no understanding of their actual circumstance. That's why you cannot share the gospel without first explaining total depravity. If a person doesn't realize that he's completely lost in his sin, he has no desire or thirst for Christ. His circumstance doesn't allow him to value who Christ is and what God offers in Christ. Circumstantial priorities. 
In this case, your circumstances are so radical that your priorities change. And under normal circumstances, of course, the gold is more valuable. But now, suddenly here the water is more valuable than the gold. And here Jesus uses the same principle and he summarizes the gospel in three words. When somebody's soul is thirsty, when somebody's soul is thirsty, in other words, they go like, oh my God, like that, like that tax collector, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. I'm desperate, God. Have mercy. I'm desperate. Like, he, like that man walking through the desert is desperate for water, so this man is desperate for mercy. Oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You know how important that is? It's everything. Not only there does Jesus say, well, this tax collector, he's going to go to heaven. Yet this Pharisee, who basically lives a, a, a morally superior life than the tax collector, this Pharisee will not enter the kingdom of God. But this man who's thirsty for mercy, that man, he will see me today. Same thing happened when Jesus was hanging upon the cross. Remember what that, what that guy said on the cross? The first guy started blaspheming Jesus. If you were, call down angels and let them save you from this crucifixion. But what did the other guy say? He said to the first guy, he says, hey, why don't you be quiet? Imagine you're hanging on a cross bleeding to death and you tell the other guy, hey, stop criticizing this guy. <laughs> he says, hey, why don't you be quiet? Because you and I, we deserve what we are getting. We deserve this. He knew exactly how sinful he was. And here Jesus said, let him, let that one, that tax collector, that man upon the cross next to Christ, that one whose soul is thirsty, let him do what? Come. Why? Because he wants to come. <laughs> he actually now wills to come because he's thirsty. They will find sufficient value in Christ to come to him. Christ becomes irresistible to them. Like that glass of cold water standing next to the bar of gold to the man who hasn't had any water for three days with burst lips, burst and bleeding lips. He, guess what's irresistible to him? The glass of water. And so it is to the one whose soul is thirsty. And Jesus said, let him who is thirsty come because he desperately wants to. And there he will find eternal water to drink, and he'll never again thirst. The person whose soul thirsts will naturally run to the source that supplies what he needs in order to be satisfied. Now, with the backdrop of chapter 7, we come to where Jesus articulates his actual purpose, which is to bring freedom to those who have faith in him to bring freedom to those who have faith in Him. The question is, in what way does Christ set them free? How are you now free now that you are in Christ? Since you've placed your faith in Christ, what kind of freedom have you experienced? Some of you are poorer financially 
now that you've met Christ. Like, oh, I thought I was going to be more free financially. In what way did He free us? John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36 is our scriptural portion for today. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My words, you are truly My disciples. If you abide in My word, you are My disciples. You're not My disciples because you do, but if you do, it's a sign that you are. Make sense? In other words, you aren't Christ's disciple because you have achieved a certain level of morality. No, your desire to honor God with your body and with your life proves that you are a disciple of Christ. My works don't save me. They show that I am saved. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my true, truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Wow. How many times have you heard people say that from the TEDx stage? From I mean, even the world will repeat this over and over again. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said it. They answered Jesus, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will be, become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Okay. Everyone who practices sin is, in fact, a slave to the sin they practice. Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom is central to human history. If you think about it, wars have been fought throughout humanity in the name of freedom. People work day in and day out so that they can be financially free. Politicians run their campaigns with promises of greater freedom. Vote for me and you'll experience what true freedom's about. Kids can't wait to leave home so they can experience freedom. Everybody is chasing after freedom. And in our culture today, personal freedom is front and center. Nothing is more valuable to us than our freedom. However, I want to propose to you that there has never been such a distortion of the meaning of freedom that is today. People have, again, like they have redefined love, the term love, they have redefined the term grace, they have redefined almost every single basic term, they have also redefined and given a new meaning to the term freedom or liberty. Liberty. People see freedom in different ways. Some people, the freedom that they require, the freedom they demand from their government is what a person can get in a prison cell. Free education, free lunch, right? Free accommodation. Uh, but liberty is different. Liberty is the freedom to be able to <laughs> provide that. Right? I want to be free to provide education and to provide accommodation and to provide support for my family. So people have injected into the term freedom many different ideologies and many different meanings. 
People think freedom means they are free to do whatever they want. I'm not free until I can just do whatever I want to do. Then I'm free. They think freedom means they are free from any moral restraints. Moral restraints. That's the reason the philosophy of moral relativism is at epic levels in our colleges and universities today. How many of you remember the material girl when she said, when she sang, Papa, don't preach? Why? You remember Madonna? Papa, don't preach. Why? Because there's this revolt against, I don't need your standards. Your standards are taking away my freedoms. I have moral freedom. Otherwise, I have no freedom at all. And you are the one, like a dictator, taking my freedom away from me by preaching to me moral standards. And so moral relativity became a big deal, still is a big deal in our colleges and universities and really everywhere. Morality is relative, they say. It means one thing to one, but yet another thing to another. Now it's getting too hot in here, I'm sorry. In other words, moral relativism is diametrically opposed to moral absolutism. Think about it. Moral relativism is diametrically opposed. Thank you, Han. It's okay, Tina. Moral relativism is directly opposed to moral absolutism. What is moral absolutism? Is the Ten Commandments. Why do you think they took it out of the courts? Right? Moral relativity. In other words, moral relativism. People think they are free. Because they become the judge of what's right and wrong. We also see people think freedom means it is when you are accountable to no one and responsible for nothing. People think freedom means when you're accountable to no one and you're responsible for nothing. This started right in the garden. People interpret freedom today to mean there is no future judgment. They believe themselves to be free. And you can go and you can search out any of Ray Comfort's videos, whatever you want, where they go on the streets and they ask people, if you had to die and stand before God today, would He allow you into His heaven? And they would say, yeah. On what basis would He allow you, He asks. And they will always respond with, well, I'm, I'm pretty much a good person, right? So basically, not that bad. Therefore, there is no future judgment awaiting me. I am free from future judgment. Because humans have taken it upon themselves to really redefine the word freedom and not look at what God meant what He said when He said freedom. Because they've taken it upon themselves to define the meaning of freedom, they now demand that they are free to say whatever they like to say and how they want to say it. Instead of speaking God's truth, they speak their truth. They demand freedom. Or they demand to think whatever they want. Now, I'm not for thought police. But instead of renewing their minds to Scripture, to the scriptural truth, they renew their minds to their subjective truth. Well, I feel this is true. 
Therefore, this is the way I'm going to think. Because they have slaughtered and butchered the meaning of freedom, they now demand to do what they want instead of obeying God's Word. They demand freedom from authorities. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. They demand freedom from rules. They demand freedom or moral, from moral standards. They become their own standard. They demand freedom from ethics. All of this evil in the name of freedom. Yet, here's the point. That even when lawless cultures increase their lawlessness, like we see happen in our nation, and they offer these people greater measures of what these people demand to have as freedom. They offer them, you know, everything that they feel they, ought, they, are, they have the right to have. It is painfully clear that these people remain bound, and even more so. They are left without less and less freedom. The more freedom they seem to get, the less they seem to have. Because there is no freedom to the soul that is bound by sin. You can be the freest person in a prison, and you can be the most bound person walking the streets of Chicago. The person who is in bondage to sin is caught up in slavery, the Bible says. That is slavery. It's not freedom. The only freedom they have is to choose the sin they love the most. That's the only freedom they have. And this is where theology comes home to roost. I mean... If you do not understand the total depravity of man, or the, they will call the radical corruption of man, and that he is spiritually completely dead, that his heart is a stone and cannot love, if, if we don't start there and understand that that's humanity, that's anthropology, if we don't understand man, we always fight for freedom and never know where to find it. We'll fight the wrong wars. This is why preaching the gospel is more important than laying out your understanding of policy in a democracy. Because it is the preaching of the gospel. That's how God's kingdom is established. The only freedom they have is to choose the sin they love the most. Because for them, because there is no freedom from sin, there is therefore no freedom from guilt. And because there's no freedom from guilt, they'll never be free from fear. Because guilt produces fear. So it is the great lie of our time that there's freedom out there for the unregenerate to pursue and then to enjoy. It's a lie. No man is free while enslaved to sin. You know why? Because the only thing standing between this person that's enslaved to sin and eternal damnation is time. It's the only thing standing between them. And that is not freedom. You see, the unregenerate, unsaved individual is bound by sin to the degree that Jesus says they are slaves to sin. They are slaves to sin. He calls them slaves to their own vices. These slaves of sin are free, but only free to choose which sin 
they will serve. They are free to choose their vice of choice. In John chapter 8, verse 32, it says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It is the truth that sets you free from the bondage of that slave master called sin. Jesus personifies truth. It is truth that sets you free from that slave master. And Jesus personifies truth. He says in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. Even though Jesus clearly taught that He is the truth and only the truth, the only truth that can bring you freedom, the world offers many pathways to freedom, at least so they think. But these are false freedoms to some. They believe that freedom comes from being religious. <clears throat> and they believe that they are religious when they obey many different laws and rituals. And they think doing all these things and making them morally superior to others is what makes them religious and therefore they ought to find freedom in it. Others believe that freedoms come from having no religion at all. I'm free. John Lennon. Bill Maher. That's, what, that's what's stopping us from being free is religion. The first one is wrong. Yeah, religion and doing all the right things in order to be free is not necessarily the answer. And believing that no religion will also free us is also not the answer. But others believe that freedom comes when they are completely self-reliant. That they do not need anybody to support them in their lives. They're self-reliant. Today, many believe that freedom comes from or comes to a person when they can simply be themselves and simply express themselves. That is when I will be free. Without being judged by anyone, they will only truly be free when they can express themselves in any way they want and still be accepted, but not just accepted. They also need to be affirmed by you. Like the drive to the church is not to allow a same-sex married couple into the building. It's the fact that the pulpit doesn't affirm them as being married. This is the problem. It's not acceptance. It's affirmation. Did you know that? <laughs> Nobody cares for you that you accept anybody. It's that you don't affirm it. Over that issue, you will be crucified. But until you affirm me, I cannot be free. My freedom depends upon you telling me that God wants me to love this way. So affirmation. All of this is part of the lie from hell. All of those ideas of freedom. Absolutely not one of them, if you appeal to them, will give you a pathway to it that ends up in freedom. It will all end up in bondage and even more so. You see, the illusion these unregenerate lives live is that they are free to sin when in fact they are enslaved. That is why they are choosing the sin they're in. They think they are, I am free to do whatever I want to, not knowing that you desire it, you will it, and you give yourself to it because it is your master. That's why.
their will is enslaved to sin. That is why they cannot choose God, because their will can only and will only choose to reject Him. That is what, that is what a will that is in bondage naturally does. It rejects God. Their desire is enslaved by sin, and that is why they cannot desire righteousness. If they desire righteousness, they will have had a desire for God, and they do not because their desire is for sin, their slave master. They are, their desire and their will has been enslaved. This is why it is important to start off by understanding freedom comes from being free from self. Free from corrupted self. Jesus said in Luke 9 verse 23, If anyone who come after me, let him deny himself. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny self. Take up his cross daily and follow me. What is your cross? It's the instrument of death. It's the thing that kills self. And only when that happens can you follow Christ. That's why baptism is important. So in what way did Christ set you free from this predicament that we find ourselves in? In what way did Christ set us free? Well, first, I have six for you, but they're going to go by quick. First, He sets you free from sin's penalty. He sets you free from sin's penalty. So if somebody says to you, you whom the Son sets free is free indeed, they're saying that Jesus set that person free from sin's penalty in their lives. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No eternal condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Eternal consequences for my earthly sins are swallowed up in Christ. This is freedom from condemnation, which is freedom from eternal consequences. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Let me insert something there because I know many people go, okay, well, that didn't quite hit the mark. I'm interested in knowing if I am free from sin's penalty, why does it seem like the things I did in life that were bad have come back to bite me? Why is this? Why is it that the person who stole a million dollars gets to spend time in prison, if in fact the penalty for sin is no longer. If you are free from the penalty, why do I experience the after effects? <laughs> Have you ever wondered about that? How much mercy does the person who sins get? Well, we have to understand this, that there are multiple When it comes to the wrath of God, the way God deals with sin is in multiple categories. And when you understand these categories, you'll understand when you see a person dealing with hardship that came to him because of his own sin. I'll give you a couple of categories. The first is that God disciplines those whom He loves. Yes or no? Biblical or unbiblical? Biblical, He disciplines those 
He loves. Therefore, if you are experiencing the discipline of the Lord, it's only a sign that He loves you. I used to minister to this guy back down in, <clears throat> in the South. Young guy, but he was always caught up in the wrong crowd. And Bible says bad company corrupts good habits. You can't stop it. That's what's going to happen. And so he, I remember him sitting in my office after I visited him in a hospital because, uh, excuse me, I visited him in a hospital a few times because he was addicted to substances. And then to buy more, what they did was they went and robbed stores. This guy was 15, 16 and when he sat in my office that one day, I remember this was the last time I got to speak with him. He said to me, he passed away after that. He said to me, Pastor Jacques, I don't know what's going on. I said, what do you mean what's going on? He goes, I am, I'm the only Christian in my friendship circle. And the last three stores we robbed, I'm the only one that always gets caught. Not one of my friends have gotten caught. Every time I do something, I end up worse. Everybody gets away with everything. It's like they have mercy, I have none. I'm say, I said to him, no, you have discipline, they have none. Now, I can't tell you that when you have an ingrown toenail, that's the discipline of the Lord. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you this that God disciplines those whom He loves. This is one way God deals with sin in your life. Let me say it differently. This is one way how God, uh, this is one way in which God deals with sin, discipline. There's a second way in which God deals with sin. It's called the wrath of sowing and reaping. The wrath of sowing and reaping. Many people, they break laws, they'll do the wrong things, and then those are seeds of sin that they have planted, which comes back to them in harvests. You planted one seed doing the wrong thing, and a lot of things come against you because of what happened. This is the wrath of sowing and reaping. That wrath of God hasn't disappeared. It's still alive and well today. Many people preach, there's no more wrath, there's no more wrath. It's because they don't understand that God deals with sin in multiple ways. Yes, there's no more eternal wrath. For him who is in Christ. But there still is discipline. And yes, there still is the wrath of sowing and reaping. Then we see another wrath. We see the wrath of abandonment. We talked about that a lot in Romans chapter 1. This is when God allows the sin somebody consistently chooses to swallow them up. This is when God stands back. It's the wrath of abandonment. And that sin feeds on them. So you have discipline. It's one, one way God deals with sin. The wrath of sowing and reaping, that's another way God deals with sin. Then you have the wrath of abandonment, that's another way God deals with sin. And then you have what's called eschatolo eschatological wrath, which is end-time wrath, and that is the, bowls of the, the seven bowls of wrath that God will pour out upon the earth. And then what you have is you have after that eternal wrath. Eternal wrath is hell. And this is the one spoken of when the Bible teaches that our sin, us who are in Christ, our sin has been paid for in full.
Somebody says, yeah, I know I made a mistake, but why am I paying for it in prison? Well, sowing and reaping wrath. God's disciplining you, whatever the case is. But eternal wrath is swallowed up in Christ for those who are in Him. Does this make sense to you? Okay. So how does Christ set us free? In what way are we set free? He sets us free from, the, from sin's penalty, from sin's penalty, especially eternal penalty. Secondly, He sets you free, or He sets your will free from sin's power. He sets your will free from sin's power. Now that Christ has set your will free, you will to no longer sin. You will to come to Christ. If anyone thirst, let him come, because that's what he wills to do, and he will be satisfied. God frees your will. You no longer only will unrighteousness and will to reject Christ. You will to accept Him and reject unrighteousness. You will to come to Christ. You will to repent of your sins. You will to do His good pleasure. Let me say it again. You will to do His good pleasure. That is your will now. The third thing that Christ sets us free from is He sets your desire free from sin's power. Sin is a slave master. We just saw that clearly taught by Jesus. Sin is a slave master. It takes away your freedom. You can no, you're no longer free to choose God, free to choose to repent, free to choose to worship. You're not free to do anything if you are under the slave master of sin. But He comes to free you from that slave master, first and foremost, so there's no longer a penalty eternally, Secondly, He frees your will. Your will comes alive. It's no longer under the power of wickedness. It's now free to will to come to Christ, to will to repent, and to will to do His good pleasure. Number three, He sets your desire free from sin's power. Now that Christ has set your desire free, you desire to no longer sin. You desire to be away from that slave master. You desire to come to Christ. You desire to follow Christ. You desire the things of God. Where you used to desire only what you found pleasure in, you now desire His good pleasure instead. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who is at work. Look at this verse. It is God who is at work in you, to do two things, to desire and to work for His good pleasure. To desire and to do His good will. God works in you a brand new desire. He gives you the desire of your heart to desire Him. Number four, in what way did Christ set us free? He gave us freedom from spiritual deafness. Freedom from spiritual deafness. The person who is physically deaf is handicapped in this way, that he's not free to hear. But when, the same thing is true for us spiritually. While we are dead in our sins, we do not have ears that can hear truth. We only hear our own truth. But when he comes and he opens our ears, that's why he opened the deaf ears and he opened the blind eyes because it was a sign of what he was going to do spiritually. When he opens the deaf ears, 
the spiritual deaf ears can hear the truth. Number five, in what way are we set free? We are, we are set free from spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. The person who is blind physically, they are restricted. Their freedom to see has been taken away. But in the same way, the person who is spiritually blind cannot see truth. They cannot see their need for Christ. But when He sets you free, He sets you free to hear the truth about God, about yourself, to see the truth about yourself and your need for Christ and your way to Him. Number six, in what way did Christ set us free? He set us free from a heart of stone that cannot love, that cannot love. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was for freedom, free to choose God, free to choose righteousness, free to desire repentance, free to desire to be right with Him. It was for this freedom that Christ came to set us free, free from eternal consequences for our weaknesses. It is for this freedom that He came to set us free. Therefore, He says, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to that slave master, sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father, today, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that we can see how Jesus came to set us free. True freedom, biblical freedom, scriptural freedom, godly freedom, freedom from the slave master of sin. Lord, that we will have the ability to hate sin and love God, whereas before we received this freedom, we were only able to love sin and hate God. But now we are free to love God and to hate sin, free to run to Christ for shelter, free to run to Him to repent of our sins, free to put our faith upon in Him for what He has done for us, Thank you that we are free, and we are also free from eternal consequences for the weaknesses that we have in this world. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes that we may see how dangerous sin really is. And that just as Paul said, that we have to keep standing firm, that we will never again be subject to the yoke of slavery. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word?